Welcome to Behind the Curtain, LA Opera's podcast series in which we look deeply at the creative process and explore opera's enduring themes and power to move us. In this podcast, Dr. Mitchell Morris discusses the complexity of opera post-1950. In his talk, titled Modernism and the Sonically Complex, Styles and Philosophies of Opera Since the 1950s, Dr. Morris invites us into the history of opera house repertory and a study of the effects of modernism. This recording was created as part of LA Opera Connect's professional development series for teachers, Opera for Educators. I have very foolishly taken a very ambitious topic and cannot possibly do it full justice, but I think I can actually show you a few things that may be helpful in orienting you to thinking about ways to think about opera since about 1950. This is a particularly important period, I think, because about in the middle of it, the first half and this, let's say maybe the first third of the time since 1950, there was a great deal of skepticism among a large number of critics about whether opera was possible anymore. I remember when I was really very young reading a very laudable book by the then the most important critic of the New York Times, John Rockwell, called All American Music where he was frankly expressing great skepticism about the possibility for future opera, because in his mind, traditionalist opera, the kind of thing we associate with composers like Thomas Pesachieri or Conrad Souza or Carlisle Floyd, these kinds of things that actually are very often performed, but not necessarily on big urban stages very frequently. Those kinds of things didn't seem to have a future to him. And he saw in the avant-garde that still got a lot of great press in those days, very, very little hope of anything resulting in opera. In fact, in this book, he was expressing skepticism that the music of someone like the great French composer Olivier Messiaen could ever translate to the stage. Um, of course, he was, you know, decent enough to acknowledge that he was wrong when less than a decade later, Messiaen's great work, St. Francis of Assisi, appeared on the stage. But there was this period of real doubt about the possibility of opera, a doubt that has been dramatically disproved in multiple ways. And I want to talk a little bit about that history and about some of the currents that I think are important and often easy to miss when we're doing the regular business of cultivating the repertory of opera houses. So the first thing I want to sort of acknowledge is that this problem of what it is to be modern has afflicted music since at least the 1850s, I would say. And the question of what modern music is, what it is to be in resonance with the time, is something that people have debated really frequently. By the beginning of the 20th century, the, the real period that starts to concern us here, I would say that it's easy enough to sort of imagine a kind of stereotypical foursome, a, a quartet of positions. You have traditionalists who like the repertories they've gotten and want to continue that kind of dramaturgy and that kind of style. You can think in some ways of some aspects of Richard Strauss, although he's very slippery and canny and really ultimately after something else, people who are writing operas in the tradition of Puccini. Think about someone like Giancarlo Minotti. 
is working in that vein that continues the kind of stuff that you saw the really around the turn of the last century. There are the reactionaries who not only want to back away from that, they want to be as conservative as possible. They started to disappear pretty dramatically after the fall of Nazi Germany, but there was a very strong reactionary strain amongst that kind of composer in the first half of the 20th century. You have progressives who are looking to adapt new musical techniques and, and models and styles into the tradition and to kind of create this developing mainstream. And then you have the people who say, let's junk everything and start over and invent a new kind of opera entirely. That is a very, very hardy bunch of people as well. Now, all of these things are actually circulating in a dynamic relationship that's constantly shifting all the time throughout the century. There are elements of these things that will show up in very unexpected and complicated entanglements. As well, there are the contributions intellectually in the 19th century from various forms of occultism. Um, my own dissertation work was on the composer Alexander Scriabin. His last work was, well, it was somewhat operatic, and who knows what on earth it was. It was to be called the Mysterium. It was to be a piece where there were no actual audience members everyone would perform. It was the Gesamtkunstwerk of Gesamtkunstwerks, to borrow Wagner's term, because Scriabin was very Wagnerian about these things. So it was going to be a work that would be a symphony of music, of words, of gestures, of perfumes, of lights, of everything on a perfect semicircular temple built especially on the banks of the Ganges, and when performed would bring about a mass transfiguration of human consciousness and our translation into a higher spiritual dimension. So I always like to say we're lucky that it didn't happen. Um, we would not be here if he had finished that piece. But Alas, he had no penicillin and had blood poisoning. That kind of thing, is it an opera? What is it? In fact, the beginning of the 20th century is filled with all kinds of hybrids that are somewhat opera-like, somewhat oratorio-like, song cycles that look like symphonies, that look like all of these very elaborate, complicated mythological creatures. And that plus an interest in science, in trying to find ways of using new ideas about acoustics and physics and incorporate it into musical textures, as well as reacting to the musics that are increasingly available from the world, and to think about the impact of the popular. All of these things are putting pressure on opera and folding themselves into it. In addition, the changes that result in this modernity or that are a response to this modernity since 1850 only keep accelerating into the 20th century and just steadily accelerating to the present. The result of that is either an even more intense retrenchment or a sort of very, very almost manic sort of attachment to the new in this kind of way. So by the time of the post-war, when the conservative reaction that the, the Nazi style in aesthetics represents uh, was collapsed and in very bad odor indeed, when science and progress seemed to have won the war, 
there was a strong reaction against traditional opera amongst a lot of composers. There was a defense amongst tradition amongst another set of composers. There was an increasing interest in radical renovations that we especially associate with the works of avant-garde composers in both North America and Europe, and an experimental impulse. These things are going on within the realm of traditional musical composition at the same time as there's external pressure. First of all, from more popular genres, and most importantly from popular genres, there are three to keep in mind here. One is the rise of musicals as larger and more ambitious enterprises. If we look around the turn of the last century, a lot of popular entertainments that were on stage were very loosely structured in the forms of reviews in these ways. For a whole bunch of historical reasons, a large number of musicals started to take on the characteristics that we associate with operettas and develop more elaborated stories that were more closely tied in with various songs and rapidly became opera-like. Till by the time of Leonard Bernstein, there is an honest question that he'll advance, for instance, in those omnibus television series programs of the 1950s about what American opera is, and he will be really willing to claim that certain kinds of musicals are opera, and then we'll write West Side Story to demonstrate this. And, you know, just for my personal opinion, West Side Story is a more successful opera than Trouble in Tahiti, which is technically the opera of that pair. At the same time, the biggest change in opera comes from the rise of cinema, because it is very clear from the beginning that movies exist in a dynamic relationship of imitation and emulation of opera. After all, why do you hire some opera diva to perform in a silent film? You're looking for her glamour as much as anything else. And the sort of model of operatic glamour was eagerly seized by Hollywood at the same time that the musical styles and the, the entire apparatus of operatic production made its way and had an impact in Hollywood as well. It's not for nothing that one of the founders of the Hollywood classical film style was Eric Korngold, who was fairly fresh off the boat from writing Die Tote Stadt. So that particular style fed directly into the movies, but the movies were cheaper. The movies were easier to distribute. The movies started to take the place of a lot of what used to be smaller opera production in the country. And without the subvention of the state, opera really started to reshape itself in the United States in particular. This only increased with the rise of other media, in fact. These pressures start to shape what possibilities there are for musical realization in the post-war era. Now, we could talk about a lot of different things because there's a bewilderingly large number of approaches and attempts and essays in opera that I think really count. If we had world enough in time, for instance, I could spend a very lengthy time talking about the later works of Benjamin Britten. Britten starts in a fairly traditionalist mindset, but under the 
impact of non-Western music and early music, amongst other things, starts to evolve, especially in the 60s, towards a really remarkable and very radical kind of operatic style. I remember the first time I encountered his very last big work, Death in Venice, it's not like any other opera since Monteverdi's Orfeo, in a way, in the kind of restraint it tends to show towards singerly qualities. It's very, very much about recitative. It's about talking in this really very subtle kind of musical way. That's a tradition that goes in a particular direction. There's a whole set of experimental traditions we don't have time to talk about. We might consider John Cage's late works in the pieces he called Your Operas, which are these very large assemblages. I've actually participated in one of Your Operas 3 and 4, a production of that. My task was to choose three arias from 19th century operas that I liked, and then I would sing them at certain times without accompaniment, while other people were singing their choices of other arias, and another group of musicians were playing old recordings that were chosen aleatorically to create this kind of evolving soundscape of fragments of former operas that was meant to be creative yet dismissive. Basically, Cage's position was, you sent us these things, Europe, now we're going to send them back to you. That's another whole set of traditions. So what I'd like to do, because I'd like to play you some examples, is I wanna talk about three basic strands of thinking that I think matter a lot in this period, and I'm gonna give you a few representative examples. So the three categories that I want to talk about is one, the place of experimentalism and one of the things that happens to it in the course of the late 20th century. Second, the paradox that trying to play very old music can somehow seem very new indeed. And third, a couple of reflections on the role of the popular in late 20th and early 21st century operatic enterprises. Of these three, the first is going to be the longest. Now, if you look at the works of composers who would consider themselves avant-garde in the late 40s and the early 1950s, they would share a number of assumptions about what the job of music should be. First and foremost, they would believe that art should challenge you. In my less forgiving moments, I describe this as the aspirin theory of music, that music should be bitter and not coated with anything, and you should chew it thoroughly so that it will be good for you. Now, this is an old strain. This goes right back to Plato, who wants to ban the bad music that makes you happy and only support the music that will make you a good, brave, pious warrior. So he would, in the Republic, have his Socrates say, oh, we should ban some kinds of music that makes you lazy and sissy-like and, and boring. We should only have manly soldier music. Well, that worry about music's effect on character is really durable in all civilizations that I can think of. Certainly in the Confucian tradition, part of what goes wrong in society is when you play the music the wrong way. In India, 
various formulae, various ragas, various modes had very specific times and places to be performed. You did not play them when they were not appropriate. So there's a lot of attempts to control music and to make sure that it doesn't get too exciting. This carries on into the 20th century. We're accustomed to thinking, for instance, of the great theorist of the theater, Antonin Artaud, as somebody, he's a radical experimental theory director and actor and sort of theorist about the theater. But one of his fundamental worries is that theater is a lie. It's the basic observation that the Puritans would have made during the English Civil War. You've got people on stage and they're telling you that they're somebody they're not. They're lying to you. It's false. So the only remedy for the lies that make up art is to make sure that you challenge audiences, you teach them something, you make it hard enough so that it's good for them. And there is a very strong kind of moralistic drive in a lot of the avant-garde to make sure that art challenges you. If it does not challenge you, it is not doing the right thing. In the service of challenging you, it is allowed to do any kind of violence to you that it wants to do. Now, I am old enough that I grew up in a period where a great deal of transgressive art was still going on. And let me assure you from my recent experience teaching undergraduates, that doesn't work so well right now. This is not a contract that a lot of undergraduates are willing to make. They are at this point generally of the mood to say, no, I did not sign up to have the art that I want to experience abuse me. But that kind of impulse is an important one. And in the wake of this sort of reformation in the early 1950s, it leads to a transformation in opera that favors confrontational and difficult material and things that refuse the conventions that opera goers are accustomed to. One result of this is the rise of something that we typically call theater pieces or monodramas. They are operas, but they are not operas in the sense of Dialogues of the Carmelites or Peter Grimes. I want to play you an example from one of the more upsetting things that I know. I'm afraid. So this consider this a trigger warning. It's a really complicated but extremely important piece. From 1969 is a monodrama called Eight Songs for a Mad King by the English composer Peter Maxwell Davies. It's based on a real incident, and that is that King George III later in life had bouts of insanity, possibly due to inherited porphyria, a blood disease, but we don't know. In any case, he had to be confined a number of times. This song cycle slash monodrama slash mini opera is about George having a period of acute mental distress. So it is a representation of madness on stage designed to be extremely upsetting. A lot of it is taken from diaries of George's physicians. A lot of it is this kind of really complicated reimagining of music history to sort of represent him. And you hear someone who is creating a kind of extended, it's a real voice record, by the way. Um, regular opera singers would run away from the screaming because 
it takes a particular kind of voice to do this without harming themselves. And arguably, you always harm yourself with this. It's one of those kind of pieces. It's a very distressing piece that is meant to confront you very directly with this kind of very difficult feeling material. There's a lot of cultural baggage surrounding it and a lot of sort of ideas that are making this a really important thing. There's also a person involved. This piece is particularly associated with a really brilliant African-American gay composer named Julius Eastman who was remarkably good at performing this kind of work, and who also specialized in very upsetting performances. He died an untimely death, and his work was largely disregarded at the time because people did not want to pay attention. Only recently has he been sort of rehabilitated critically. But that's another aspect of this as well. It's very, very much all of the stuff that makes us uncomfortable is going to be piled on the stage and you will be made to look at it or listen to it. If this is too much, please feel free to sort of mute. We'll play just for about a minute or two. If you want to listen, you'll really get a sample of this kind of really challenging world. This is what John Rockwell was thinking of when he was doubting that opera could be possible. get into it, one of the things that the staging prescribes is that the performers of the small ensemble are wearing masks that are representing the birds that were sort of kept around George to keep him company. And at one point, he picks up a violin and physically destroys it on stage. Now, you know, this is before Jimi Hendrix burns the guitar, and it means something very different when Jimi Hendrix burns the guitar. This is something that is this just really shocking level of, of rhetorical and physical violence that we feel. It's a really, it's an impact on us. And that kind of rough challenge was a really powerful element of this kind of art. It's the kind of thing that's going to lead to performance art. I'm thinking of some of the more notorious stuff in the 1980s that eventually leads to the controversies with the National Endowment of the Humanities and the Arts in the early 1990s. This kind of challenging sort of stuff is really a very powerful strain in avant-garde production in music as well. But interestingly enough, this is not the kind of experimentalism that ends up becoming especially important in music. What happens is something quite different, in fact. And in order to talk about that, let me actually turn to another example. In 1975, 
a very famous experimental um, theater producer named Robert Wilson uh, entered into a collaboration with a rather raffish and suspect composer named Philip Glass. At this time, Philip Glass was widely regarded by many, many respectable composers as just, you know, evil incarnate. I'm old enough, again, to remember how regularly dismissive most composers in the university circles were of Glass and all the kinds of stuff that he represented. At this time, there was a big geographical drama sort of set up in New York, where one imagined there were uptown composers who were fairly traditionally modernist composers that we might associate with Columbia University. And then the downtown folks who were daring and experimental, or is it simple-minded, like Reich and Glass, who didn't have regular musical jobs. Philip Glass was a cab driver who didn't have regular ensembles. Conservatory-trained musicians wouldn't play their stuff and couldn't without physical damage, who invented their own ensembles and played them in art galleries. A very, very different milieu in a very different style, but Wilson and Glass decided to write an opera. Now, this is not the kind of opera that people were accustomed to, for the most part. First of all, the libretto is an extremely odd construction. When there are words, they are words from a neurodivergent young man that Wilson was helping with childcare. So there are these really interesting fragments of language that are very associative, but don't necessarily follow any kind of Aristotelian logic. There are also numbers and solfege syllables. And then there are a series of striking images and fairly abstract tableau. The result of all this was the work we call Einstein on the Beach. And in the context of the kinds of opera that were available in 1975, Einstein represented something really fresh and remarkably disorienting to most people. This is a more recent production, but it captures a lot of how very surprising a piece this could be. 52. Seven hundred thirty-six, seven hundred thirty-seven, 
All these are the ideas of my friends. And these are my days. 46, 64, my friends. 112. Make a Toyota in three. This is one. These four are the I.I. days. Five. Loop. So six. If you say one. Will it get some wind for the sailboat? Eighteen. And it could. Seventy-two. Seventy-nine. Four. Eighty-one. It could be. Forty-three. It could be very fresh and clean. One. It could be those. Of course, one of the points of this is that that could go on forever. And in fact, the time sense is one of the things that was so challenging about works like Einstein and the Beach when they were premiered. At the time, this kind of style was enough to cause riots. This kind of style was so hard for people that really, I remember being in college, you know, really about halfway through this sort of early minimalist period, playing a recording by Steve Reich and having people come down the hall to beg me to turn it off. Just please, please, you must turn it off right now. It is interesting and it's really kind of ironic because of the entrance of Glass and his style into the film world, this, for my undergraduates, is normal music. This kind of thing doesn't really shock anyone at this point. Minimalism has become sort of part of the sort of modernist common coin. It's a very comfortable way of working for us. And, you know, minimalist and partially minimalist and minimalist inflected things are, are present in most of the music I hear when I'm watching television or watching a film. It's really, really that common. And that's an important aspect. Of course, Glass deserves his own day's worth of discussion because each one of his pieces has been very, very different and remarkably productive in many, many ways. But he's not the only composer, of course. And it's really worth because it still retains an enormous power to impress people. It's worth remembering the impact of Nixon in China, particularly its first performance. Nixon in China was a very big deal in 1987, especially because it was premiered on PBS. It was a television event as well as an event at the Houston Opera. And it was constructed as such with narrations by Walter Cronkite with an entire apparatus devoted not just to the opera, but devoted to the visual and television representation of the event that the opera is also about. The opera is not just about Nixon in China, it's about the coverage of Nixon in China. And that kind of layered process is a really important part of the opera, as is the shocking verisimilitude that they were going for in the original production. The point was to make it look as much like the photographs taken in 1972 as possible. And we see something of that when we see, for instance, the opening of Act One, Scene Two, when Nixon arrives for his interview with the chairman.
I do remember in 1987 how shocking it was at one point when John Dakers, who sings Mao, holds up his hand in front of his face and all you could see was the hairline and the wart. And I had this kind of shiver moment. It's like, (gasps) it looks like Mao. And that kind of verisimilitude was an important part of the effect of this particular opera. But equally as important is the origin of the opera as a project brought together by a director. It was, in fact, Peter Sellers who knew Alice Goodman and knew John Adams and thought we should all do this work together. And that points up an important aspect of this kind of contemporary opera, just as Glass worked so closely with Robert Wilson. So Sellers has been a major force in shaping a number of projects in this tradition over the last 30, 40 years, at least. And I want to leave this section with one more small fragment of another thing that Peter Sellers was associated with. This is the truly wonderful piece by Kaya Sariaho called La Mort de Loin, from the year 2000. This is an extremely austere opera based on a medieval story. Kaya Sariaho is an extremely important composer originally from Finland. She's been working at IRCOM in Paris for quite a long time, and she specializes in a kind of experimentalist style called spectralism. And what you get is this really hauntingly beautiful, delicate, sort of nuanced kind of music. There's nothing quite like it. She's a wonderful, wonderful composer. So in this example, we get a chance to hear a little bit of one of the arias from this particular opera sung by the absolutely splendid Don Upshaw, with whom Sellers has worked so closely on more than one occasion.
There's more than a hint of Debussy's Peleas et Melisande in what Sariajo is doing. And that really just points up also, I think, how things that are actually very frankly on the cutting edge, Ircom is very, very much about musical research as a kind of composition. Um, even so, she takes great care to sort of make sure that she refers back in this way. That's one side of one particular strand of experimentalism that also is involved with a way of kind of coming to terms with a traditional opera in many, many important ways. There's another set of traditions that's much wilder and woollier that we really don't have time to talk about. We could talk about the sort of eccentricities of a number of composers, especially associated with California. Cage is not that unusual a figure when you put him next to the complicated theatrical dance piece, no influenced operatic like works of a composer like Harry Parch, who wrote for his own 43 tuned pitch to the octave scale. Or you think about Lou Harrison's great puppet opera on young Julius Caesar's affair with the King of Bithynia. There are a number of pieces like that. There are a number of quasi-operas and works that pursue many, many different aspects of this. Unfortunately, poorly represented online are a number of works by a couple of very important African-American composers. I was tearing the world apart looking for a decent production of Anthony Davis's wonderful opera X, The Life of Malcolm X, from back in the 1980s. His more recent opera on the Central Park Five was just released a couple of years ago. I didn't really actually have the video that I wanted for that as well. There's a number of pieces like this that may become accessible to keep an eye out for. Two brief comments about two other strands that are typically neglected when we talk about opera. One of them has to do with one of the remarkable aspects of opera since the 1950s, which is that so much other opera from the long ago past is actually accessible. This is a historically unusual thing, and it's really something that we don't think about nearly enough. The idea of an operatic canon really only dates to the early 19th century at best. Before that, it's my favorite metaphor of a constant evolving top 40 radio station with no oldies. You were always interested in the next opera, not the one that you saw last season. 
This changes increasingly over the course of the 19th century, but it's really with the bel canto revival that takes up a special steam after World War II that we associate with the really great modern divas like Maria Callas, or we might think of Joan Sutherland, or you can think of Renata Dibaldi, all those great sopranos who would sing works by Donizetti or Bellini. These things had fallen out of fashion. You didn't. You maybe heard an antique diva warble some number on a recording on a variety show from back when they were popular wax cylinders. Practically, you didn't see whole revivals. It was actually singer-driven as much as conductor-driven to bring these operas back and to kind of refound the bel canto singing tradition. At the same time, the early music movement is interested in trying to reconstruct older styles of performance. Now, what I'm going to suggest to you just in brief is that part of the success of earlier repertoire revivals has to do with a way of finding music that feels accessible but fresh. Let's say you don't want to listen to eight songs for a Mad King, but you want something new. In that case, by the late 1970s and the early 80s, you have a choice of something like this, perhaps. This is Sarah Connolly performing a famous aria from Handel's Giulio Cesare. particular number has almost anything you could want in terms of contemporary opera. The sound is fresh and new. It's not like something that you've heard if you've heard your millions, Tosca. 
The staging is remarkable. It's both a combination of Baroque machinery and a kind of anachronistic Regisur Theater, sort of British imperial critique of the domination of Egypt. It's all kinds of things being brought together in this very, very fresh sort of way. Um, and last but not least, let me make one fast gesture to the popular and show you yet another example of something that is really clearly opera, though you might have thought that it weren't. This running and shouting. What is it now, dear? I had him. Oh, no, the sailor burst in. I saw them both running down the street and I said to myself, well, it's fat. I had him. His throat was bare beneath my hand. Yeah, there, dear. Don't fret. No, I had him. His throat was bare. Now he'll never come again. Is he hush, love, hush. I keep telling you. When do I wait? You told me to wait. Now he'll never come again. There's a hole in the world like a great black pit. It's filled with people who are filled with shit and the vermin of the world inhabit it. But not for long. They all deserve to die. Tell you why, Mrs. Lover, tell you why. Because in all of the whole human race, Mrs. Lovett, there are two kinds of men and only two. There's one staying put in his proper place and the one with his foot in the other one's face. Look at me, Mrs. Lovett, look at you. We all deserve to die. Even you, Mrs. Lovett, even I. Because the lives of the wicked should be made brief for the rest of us. Death would be a relief. We all... Goodness gracious. So that's some blood and thunder. All right. I'll say that for it. In any case, really, there's no reason that ought not to count as opera. And by the late 1970s, it was increasingly clear. When Beverly Sills was running the City Opera in New York, they started to do musicals very, very regularly. And in fact, one of the things that's most exciting to me sort of thinking as a musicologist and as somebody who loves to go to musical theatrical events about being around right now is how much flexibility there continues to be to explore an endless variety of wonderful musical entertainments. And so with that, I could talk for hours more about so many other pieces. Thanks very much for your time. Take care. You've been listening to LA Opera's Behind the Curtain. If you've enjoyed listening to this podcast, you'll want to make sure you don't miss an episode. Please subscribe and leave a rating or review on Apple iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you listen. Remember to share with your friends on your favorite social media, and we'll see you at the opera.